All right, here we go. Welcome to another episode of the Non-Victim Nation podcast. I am joined today by Joni, I'm going to say Weiss, but I'm sure that's not how you actually well, say it. Well, Weiss would be the German pronunciation. Okay. I go by Weiss. It's wrong, but that's what my parents have always used, so right. I'll just go with Jody Weiss. Yeah, I had some German friends, and so I, yep. whenever I see a W, I tend to pronounce it that way. Yep. So there you go. Uh, you were the former superintendent for the Chicago Police Department. Correct. And then prior to that, you were uh, you worked for the FBI, correct? I did. Okay. Uh, how long did you do that? 23 years. That must have been pretty exciting. It was. And I got to do a lot of stuff. As an agent, I was able to do all the fun stuff, you know, SWAT, fire instructor, bomb technician. Um, but then as you get into management, you move up. If you want to get promoted, you kind of have to do that. So mm-hmm. I was able to... I, my last stop was special agent in charge of the Philadelphia field office. Okay. Uh, but it was fun going from a baby agent in Corpus Christi, Texas, back in 1985, as to the person running the Philadelphia field office and retiring out of there in 2008. Right. So a lot of lot of interesting cases along the way to work. Great people. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I always emphasize this. I was FBI BC. And by that, I mean okay. before Comey. Okay. I thought he was an unmitigated disaster. And I'm not a big fan of Christopher Ray. But the people, the agents I worked with, were probably some of the best people I've ever worked with. So I always say, FBI, BC, people look at you like, what? I got to make a coffee mug out of that. I can know I could sell it and make some Right, money, there you go. Oh, well, I'm not the best entrepreneur, so I just got to say that, but I didn't put it into play. It's just a work in progress. That's right. There we go. And so then how did you make the transition from the FBI to the Chicago PD? Oh, great story. I was, it was a Friday afternoon. Mm-hmm. Best man my wedding, who's a Chicago guy, he calls up and he says, like, hey, what are you doing? And I said, it's Friday afternoon, Pat, just kind of winding down. Hopefully nothing bad happens in the next four hours and I can get home. So he said, well, listen, Mayor Daly um, is under the gun to bring somebody in from the outside to run the Chicago Police Department. I said, mm-hmm. that will never happen. He goes, no, no, he's under some pressure. There's been some oh, controversies that have hit the news and kind of national media. And he's looking for an outsider to come in. He wants to be an FBI agent. I said, are you kidding me? He goes, well, your name came up because you were the assistant special agent in charge in Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, So people know you and um, you're probably like number five on the depth chart, but we want to have a pool in case people drop out. Mm -hmm. I said, let me talk to my wife, Janice, and she what she thinks. And she's like, are you serious? I said, it'll never happen, Janice. There's four people ahead of me. So let's see see what happens. So that was a Friday afternoon. The next Friday, mm-hmm. I'm told I've got to meet with the like the mayor's point person on this. And we talked for five hours in the Union Station in Philadelphia. And then on Saturday, I meet with the mayor. So, you know, I'm trying to cram for an interview and seeing like, okay, I'll be ready. I probably said 10 words in like two hours. Wow. All I did was listen to the mayor talk, 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 talk. But it was an interesting guy. He's kind of eccentric, um, seemed really committed to the city, seemed really committed to the police department. So we shook hands and left. Now, I knew that day there was another individual he was meeting with. So I'm with him for two hours. Um, after we depart, I get a call about 45 minutes later from his guy. And he says, hey, we're headed back to Chicago. I said, well, wait a minute. You have got an interview. He goes, yeah, that didn't go so well. I said, what happened? He said, right. you know how you know we talked for several hours the night before? I said, yeah. He said, well, when the mayor started talking to him, he held his hand up and said, Hey, I heard all this. Tell me something new. To which the mayor said, how about this? Goodbye. And walked out. Wow. So <laughs> now we've, we're a week into this process. And I'm thinking, okay, we'll see how this plays out. And then on, oh, excuse me, on, I think it was Monday, I get a call. Okay, the mayor wants to announce you to be the new superintendent. I said, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. I haven't told the director. 
I haven't told anybody. They go, well, well, could you do it like today? I go, no, I can't. You got to put this on hold. So I bought a few days. I called up the direct, director Muller at the time and told him, and he's like, holy cow, superintendent of Chicago Police Department. I said, yeah. And he said, well, good luck. Let me know if I can help you on that. And um, we went down there. It was, you know, I did this announcement as a total surprise. Mm-hmm. I didn't even participate in the national search. Daly went out and wanted to get his own guy. So when I go, when I went to the police board to meet with them, they were extremely hostile. And when I was going through my confirmation hearing, I think a lot of people didn't even realize in the, uh, the city council that I was still with the FBI. And they were being a little antagonistic. And I said, hey, listen, if this is too hard, ladies and gentlemen, I'm still a special agent in charge of Philadelphia. I will be very happy to leave. And they're like, well, what do you mean, leave? I go, I'll go back to Philly. I'm really happy in that job. Right. And uh, so then we ended up and everything was fine. But it was funny because the the government relations office said, we can't believe you actually said that to them. I said, I, you guys came to me. I think it'd be an amazing job. But if it's creating too much angst and hostility, Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't want to be involved in this. So it it went well. And all of a sudden I end up as superintendent of Chicago Police Department, 54th superintendent in the in the department and only the second one from the outside. Mm-hmm. O.W. Wilson was the first one back in the early 60s. And, you know, for a department that's been around for you know, since the 1800s, I was only the second outsider. Right. Since then, they've had a few outsiders that would come along, but it, it was, that was interesting. And where I really screwed up, I, I'd always worked with the cops. I'd always played on the softball teams, the football teams. We were always on task forces. I thought, oh, I'll be embraced by the Chicago Police Department. It's all good. Oh my goodness. Did I underestimate how much they dislike federal agents because mm-hmm. federal agents do arrest corrupt police officers. In other cities, that's not a big deal. I mean, Bill Bratton, when he was the chief in Los Angeles, if you were indicted as a corrupt police officer, he would basically banish your your badge or your star uh, never to be worn again because wow. it's been tarnished. Uh, in Chicago, it's kind of like they band around and circle the wagons and protect you. So I, I really underestimated that. But it was the greatest experience I had because as an FBI agent, you, you're doing investigations, but you're not really with the people. Um, you don't, your cases are big cases and they're terrorism and stuff like that or gangs and stuff, but you don't see the everyday life. And I thought that was fascinating to be able to go out in the community, work with people and see how what you put in place with your team actually does have a positive impact and you push crime down and you see people outside and they come up and they thank you for that. So it was a really good experience for me. Very challenging, probably the hardest job I had, um, but very, very, very great opportunity. I always be very thankful for Mayor Daly for giving me that chance. Mm-hmm. So I, in doing like a little bit of background research, uh, I read a couple articles and, and one had talked about the fact that you were an outsider and how that created animosity like in just kind of the rank and file officers and i don't and i don't quite understand that i I totally get like the you know wanting to protect their own so was it did you kind of find like friction in in dealing with them or like how did that go good question um part of it goes back i think to just the city of chicago i'm a florida boy and i'm out here in arizona we're a transitory state. I mean, I'm actually born and raised in Florida, but most of the people you're into in Florida came from somewhere else, mm-hmm. just like out here. Right. You know, I'm I'm not a native Arizonan. Um, there's not that many of them. In Chicago, people are born there, they work there, they die there. So if you didn't go to a particular parish or to this particular school, um, that kind of was like 
like almost like one step against you right there mm -hmm. uh, because you don't have that Chicago culture your whole time. You're kind of just, uh, you know, a, a squatter in the city. So right. I didn't realize that coming from my background. And plus in the bureau, I just moved around everywhere. So it's somebody says, where do you call home? It's like, well, it's kind of where I am right now. Yeah. Um, but so the city is, is very clicky. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not openly receptive toward outsiders. And then because of the background, you know, where some of the cops, they do really bad things and only a handful of them. Um, but who investigates them is the FBI. So all, everybody has this thing like, he's out to get us. And uh, that was difficult to overcome. And, and once you meet the officers, they're fine. Yeah. And we put so many things in place for them. We got new schedules in place. We got uniform changes that they had never had before, different work schedules. Um, we did so much in those three years that I know Bill Bratton said, they should erect a statue up for you. And I said, oh my God, it would be torn down, vilified graffiti if they ever did. But right. uh, we did accomplish a lot. But I do think, I, especially also then being the first outsider. Mm -hmm. And two things I did in the beginning, uh, that one was definitely a mistake. The other one, the messaging was was horrible on my part. Because again, I under, underestimated you know, the challenge. And those are those are important things. Messaging is so important. I went to everybody and their brother about wearing a uniform. You know, I'd never been a police officer, but then I kind of felt, should I wear a uniform? I'm the top cop. I'm representing the department. So I talked to my different friends, split right down the middle. So I go, wait a minute. I know the exact person to go for. I'll go to the head of the FOP. Okay. Big guy, Mark Donahue. Big guy, for the most part. I, I actually kind of liked him, mm -hmm. except for this one. So we have, we have coffee. <clears throat> and I said, Mark, help me out on this one. I, I want to be respectful to the department. I know there'll be some that say, you know, he, he's not wearing our uniform. He's not one of us. He doesn't, he doesn't care about us. He's embarrassed. And I said, and that's certainly not the case. But then I wear a uniform. There's going to be some, he hasn't earned it. He didn't go through the school. I said, so here's the idea I have. What if I wear a uniform, but only at ceremonial events, such as, you know, graduation ceremonies, promotion ceremonies, God forbid, funerals, uh, parades, stuff like that. So Mark's like, I think that'd be perfect. I said, every day you'll see me in a suit, mm -hmm. but on those events, I'll be uniform. We shake hands. So I go, great, problem solved. And it seemed, it seemed reasonable to me. Right. So time goes by, we have a graduation ceremony. I go there, I'm in uniform. I have my, my commanding officer and the office of the superintendent inspect me, make sure everything is perfect. So I go there, I'm you know saluting people. Everything's great. The mayor's there. He said, oh, you look really good in uniform. I said, oh, thank you, sir. And <laughs> so then I come back and uh, I'm taking my uniform off. I'm putting a suit on my, my, well, the best man in my wedding who, who actually got me the job. He, I had hired him and he goes, man, I can't believe what Donahue's saying about you. I said, yeah, you're probably shocked, man. He's being really, you know, favor, favorable of me on this. Cause I sought him out and he looks at me and goes, you think he's being favorable? What he's saying to you? And I go, I kind of thought so based on our conversation a month ago. Right. Pat flips on the TV. He goes, he has no right to wear that uniform. He's a disgrace. And so I call him up and I said, what, what's going on? He goes, oh man, I'm really sorry. But you know, I came back and told the guys what I told you and they got really mad. And um, I, uh, I, I, I kind of had to back off that. I go, well, you know, Mark, I didn't feel that strongly either way. Why didn't you pick up the phone and call me? He goes, yeah, I guess I should have. I said, well, you kind of made this a mess. He goes, yeah, yeah, I didn't want to get off on a bad foot. I said, well, it, it's going to be hard for us to work together collaboratively when I can't even, you know, trust what you say and that you're, and, and man, are your work. And, and Rico, what's great about Mark 
He's like six, six, about two, he is a bear. And the guy that was giving him a lot of grief is this little, like, you know, almost like a little runt dog running around about five, seven, 145 pounds, just but a little mouthy guy. And I'm looking at him and I'm going, you could swat him away with one hand. And he's the one that caused you to do this. So I said, right. no, it is what it is. You know, I didn't, uh, I, I, if you're in an awkward situation that you then never wear a uniform again, you know, and it's like, you know what, I'll just do what I did. And people get pissed off. They get pissed off. Right. That was a mistake I made. I should have just stayed in a suit. That would have been easier. The other mistake I made, and I didn't think this was a mistake, but the messaging was horrible. Mm -hmm. There was this one police officer that he had his prisoner. He's in the hospital. The prisoner is. He's handcuffed to a wheelchair. And he's really mouthy. He's drunk, obnoxious. All of a sudden, you see the police officer, like, leave him. And I'm getting this video clip from the PIO. I go, so what's going on here? See the police officer walk out, leaves his prisoner unattended, guys yelling and hollering. Police officer comes back, takes out a blackjack and starts beating him with it. Wow. And I'm going, wow, that's absolutely amazing that somebody would do that. First off, you abandon your prisoner, you go out and you bring back an illegal weapon and you and you beat him in front of cameras in the emergency room of a hospital. So he was suspended for like, I think a year and he was gonna come back. And I'm like, this guy should never come back what he did on that, that was just wrong. So I was still the special agent in charge of Philadelphia. And I see this video. I hadn't even gone. I didn't confirm, but I was not there yet. So I called the special agent in charge in Chicago. It was a personal friend of mine. and said, hey, Rob, take a look at this. I, I'm not trying to get in your business, but this looks like a, a legit civil rights complaint. Mm -hmm. So he goes, oh, my God, this is horrible. So I said, well, I said, I just wanted to make you aware of it. And I kind of forgot about it because usually the civil rights cases never go anywhere. The DOJ looks at it and, oh, you know, we're not going to take it. At least back then it was the case. Mm -hmm. So suddenly I get a call. It's like, hey, have you heard that this guy is going to be charged? I said, oh, that's great. And all of a sudden I go, uh-oh, I guess I shouldn't have said that. And they're going, are, are you aware of this? I go, yeah, I referred it back when I was SAC Philly to the SAC out here. I said, this was one of the most egregious cases I've ever seen of police brutality. And I said, and, and I'm usually favorable on the police side. I understand sometimes you make an arrest. You have to do anything you can to arrest the guy. But afterwards, you have to make sure he has the medical attention if he got hurt or something on that. But this was bad. Mm -hmm. They're going, yeah, but 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 he he could go to jail for this. I go, well, do you think that he should? He goes, no, that guy was really mouthy. And I go, wow. I said, this is going to be a harder job than I thought. So the guy actually got, um, he, he pled guilty and he got a four-year suspension. And they got really pissed off at me at that. And, I, mm -hmm. and I'd explain it at town halls. And I said, who in this room would do that? I said, sir, I said, no, come on, guys. I said, something like that goes up. Do you know how hard it makes your job? Everybody sees this on TV, and this is what they think of a Chicago police officer. Mm -hmm. And some of the older guys, and that puts the fear in their eyes so that they won't do anything against us. I go, oh, man. I said, you are like two or three generations like, like out of touch. Right. So those two things caused a lot of hate and discontent. So I had to get over those. And with some people, I never would. But it was just, uh, again, all the cops that got to know me, at least majority of them, seemed like we got along really good. We worked well. They recognized the stuff we got for them. We put some really good programs in place. And so I was very proud of my time there because I didn't come there to fight crime. My predecessor, great crime fighter, Phil Klein, he never got the recognition he deserved. He took homicides down 25% like overnight. And, wow. and he's a solid guy, good cop. He He just didn't like dealing with the people that much. He, his thought process was give me a big enough army and I'll shut down the crime in the city. So his, 
his interpersonal skills with the community wasn't weren't that strong. And there were some controversial things going on then, probably totally outside of his control. But uh, I took what he did, gave him full credit for it, and just tweaked a little bit, gave him a little more accountability, a little more transparency. And um, we made we had some really good progress. Mm -hmm. So like I said, it was a great experience. Um, Mayor Daly was an interesting guy to work for, um, mm -hmm. very eccentric, but really did love the city. And I was always impressed with that, that somebody could be that passionate about that. And he's a mayor for, I think, 22 years, longer than his dad. And then he came wow. back from uh, Labor Day weekend in 2010 and basically said, I'm, I'm done. I'm not going to run. And the city was like, like, didn't know what to do. That's 22 years at the same mayor. Right. And I'm like, well, mayors leave. And they go, no, he doesn't. You know, he doesn't leave at all. Right. And uh, we're, at a, we're at a city hall meeting and the board's there and people are crying and they're upset. I'm looking around like this. And I, again, not being from Chicago, I didn't know that whole culture. Like his dad's mayor for 21 years, the son's mayor for 22 years. Um, those are long times. And yeah. that's kind of the city is you at that point. Right. So that was a good, good experience for me. I enjoyed it. Felt we did some good. Always do good better. Um, so. That was my time. Right. It sounds pretty interesting. Just the, that mentality is an interesting way to think of things. Since I've never been to Chicago, everything that, I've, that I know about it is, is purely through the lens of what the media portrays and you know, people that I've, that I've interacted with, right? And so there's always this sort of idea that, like, like you're saying, it's like there is a, a very kind of tight culture that if you're not from there or if you're not from the right part of there, you know, that you're a, a subsection of, of somebody or people, I guess. So like they talk about, there's like the South side of Chicago versus everything else. Mm -hmm. um, and the way that when I hear people talk about the South side of Chicago, they make it sound like it's basically a war zone. Um, that it's like a horribly dangerous place to go. I, I had a friend of mine who talked about a, a buddy of his and his wife that had just moved there. And they were in a neighborhood where they were going to move into and because the local gangs didn't recognize them, they shot them purely because they thought that they were not someplace they were supposed to be, I guess. You know, I don't know if that's really the way things happened or if that's even a normal sort of occurrence that happens there. But when I hear, it seems like anything that I hear about Chicago typically is in that vein. It's all very negative, And especially when it concerns the South Side or the inner city part of it, it's like, a lot of like gang activity, a lot of just really negative things that you don't ever want to be a, a part of. You don't want to be in those areas. Yeah. I used to always go to the South side because both drivers that I had were South siders. They knew that area really good. Um, I guess, I don't know. I kind of, I, I thought the South side was probably more dangerous. I thought the people there, um, very, very clicky. Um, if you are in the wrong place at the wrong time, good chance you're going to get shot. The West side just seemed a little crazier. Uh, the kids were a little bit more crazy. They didn't seem to have as many shootings. The South side was always, I thought the most dangerous place. So I spent a lot of time down there, especially on Friday nights and the people were really interactive. It was, it was kind of a funny thing, Rico, because <clears throat> as I mentioned later, earlier, as an FBI agent, you don't really deal that much with the public. You go out and do interviews, but you know, you're not doing the everyday policing. So my wife's like, she was like, how, how do you think that's going to work out? I said, I don't know. I just treat people the way I want to be treated. Um, I treat people the way I'd expect, you know, a cop to treat you. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll see how it plays out. So I'd go out, especially in, in like in the South side and the West side, the black communities there, not, not to boast, but they really liked me because I was out there and I would talk to them. Mm -hmm. Um, 
there was a, a deputy chief who's passed away, a great guy. I really liked him. And, and he said, you have no idea the impact you have in this city here in the black community. He said, you're doing things that no other superintendent has ever done. I said, yeah, come on. He goes, no, no. And, and he goes, it doesn't matter if they were black. You connect with the people really, really well because you're honest. You go talk to them. You listen to them. And uh, he said, and we went back this one incident one night. There was a party going on and this lady approached us. We were just running around. And uh, she said, there's a party going down there. And they said, they don't care about the police. They'll shoot the police. Well, Ernie was a big guy. He took that as a personal uh, a challenge. Right. So we get to this house. He goes, probably would be best if you went around back. I said, probably so. So I'm in back and I'm looking up to look at the kids. The kids are like flipping me off and stuff. And I'm kind of like just shaking my head. All of a sudden we hear a lot of banging going on in there. And I'm with my chief of staff. There's another white guy. And he goes, I think they need our help. I said, oh, no, no. We will stay right here. Uh, there's probably things going on there that I want to be able to say I did not see. So um, all of a sudden I hear, hey, the superintendent, are you there? So I come around and it's a hostile crowd. You could tell there's tension in the air. And I'm looking at this going, this may not have been a good idea. One kid yells out, hey, there's the superintendent. This pack of kids come at me. All they want are photographs and autographs. And, and I go, you're kidding me. And Ernie is just shaking his head like this. He goes, this is remarkable that you were able to calm this place just by going in and taking some selfies with these kids. Right. And um, it's one of those things I didn't really recognize because I really, I just, I kind of believe in people. I don't kind of, I do. I believe in people. I think if you treat people right, mm -hmm. at least give them the option to reciprocate that to you. If they don't, you know, then you change your approach. Right. But he was in awe of that night of how I was able to calm a situation just by coming around the front and taking mm -hmm. some pictures with these kids. Um, but yeah, th those factions, you know, Janice was, my wife was always worried when I'd be out on Friday nights down there. I say, no, I got, I got the cops with me. It's fine. We're not the real police. We're not doing car stops. We're not running missions. You know, we're just out talking to people. And, um, it, those, those are my favorite days, Friday nights going out in the South side and the West side of Chicago. Mm -hmm. I'll be honest. I used to hate going in the gold coast because that's where all the money is. And it's just people are worried about the littlest thing, double parking. They're complaining about this. Kids skateboarding in the middle of the afternoon when someone wants to take a nap. And I go to these town hall meetings up there and I go, you know, I appreciate your issues and you should be thankful because these are the issues you're talking to me about. Right. Because if you would go down to the south or west sides of this city, you'd come back here just going, thank God, this is the only thing we have to deal with. And uh, I, I, I dreaded those meetings because there was a bunch of snobs running around complaining about the most ridiculous things and um, really could care less about what's happening in the city. And I used to always tell the cops, it's like, hey, Chicago isn't broken down by the 73 different communities. It, it's Chicago, Chicago. So if bad things are happening in the south side, it doesn't matter. People of the other parts of the country, they just say it's Chicago. Mm -hmm. So you can't just break it down by these little communities and stuff like that. But right. definitely, definitely, a, it, it, no doubt, dangerous areas. Um, and you, you just have to kind of recognize that. So if you had, I guess, like a magic wand and you could like just say, we're going to put these things in place. Can you think of anything that would like help resolve that and maybe break some of those barriers down? This is just me talking from what I've seen. Um, I think the biggest problem in, in Chicago and, and in many of the, especially in the black communities is the lack of a father figure. I really do. Mm -hmm. um, so many kids are being raised by grandparents and then the man oftentimes is replaced by the gang. I know it's controversial and probably helped if I was black when I was saying this, but I, I just see the absence of a father figure. 
has allowed gangs to come in and influence these young men so much. And uh, that's a huge problem. So if I had a magic wand, I'd want to make sure that every father stays involved with his kids. If I had a second magic wand, I think the other thing I'd want to do is get greater employment opportunities for some of these kids. Because you you talk to some of the young men and they're like, I, I can't make this type of money doing anything legitimate. I've got three kids. I need to make cash and I can make a lot more selling drugs. I recognize that's probably going to get me in prison or dead, but there's no other options. And you look around, there's like all, you know, foreclosed homes are crumbling down. You know, and um, to bring employment, revitalize that in some of those areas, I think would be really helpful. But if there was one thing I could do, I think it would be to really emphasize the value of the nuclear family. I just mm -hmm. think it's so important. The, the guys I worked with, both my drivers, <laughs> my one driver, his dad was very, very involved in his life. And he's a terrific young man. Mm -hmm. The other driver never knew his father, but both his grandparents really directed him throughout his life. They had that family influence. But I think the absence of the nuclear family is is a huge problem, especially in a lot of the communities, at least in the Chicago area. I'd also say in Philadelphia, when I worked up there and was in the FBI. So that's my magic yeah, wand. You know, bring you bring the nuclear family in place and keep it in place. Right. Um, I think that that is a, a huge factor in most of the U.S. right now. There are so many forces that feel it feels like they're actively trying to break that down to divide the people even further. Um, it's gotten worse, hasn't it? Yeah, it really has. You know, it it just seems like it. it I feel like an old man when I say this, but it just seems like things are like, un it's unrest. Mm -hmm. You know, you're, you're hearing crazy stuff. Uh, somebody said, would you ever want to go teach? And I go, no, I don't know enough pronouns. Right. So I, 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 I'd have a really hard time yeah. uh, teaching nowadays, but they just, it's just crazy stuff. And it's always like, you know, you're different generations, you know, this is great. And the older people, oh, you guys are being crazy. But you know, this, this, this whole transgenderism stuff, I just don't get it. You know, yeah. I, I just, I just don't get it. I mean, in the fact that it's how you feel today. And at first I thought, well, this is a great deal. I wish they had this when I was in high school. I could go in the like, girl's locker room. I feel like a girl today. Just got done with football practice. Cheerleaders are in. I'm feeling like a girl, you know, right. but you say that jokingly. And then you think, but that might even happen today. Yeah. And you sit back and go, this can't be happening. This mm -hmm. cannot be happening in our country today. So right. maybe it does mean I'm getting old, but I do feel there's been a lot of the values that we have shared over so many years are just are just being destroyed mm -hmm. and uh and i'd be okay if they were being replaced with something but it seems so much of it is just nihilism i just want to destroy it mm -hmm. um we don't have any better replacement we just want to destroy what basically this country has, has stood for and that right. that is really hard for me i'm you know bring me a new idea what well, maybe what i'm doing is old and it's not working out but give me don't just say i'm screwed up and i'm bad uh mm -hmm. tell me what we can do to be successful and mm -hmm. that i think that part of the equation sometimes is missing right and I don't have anything against people that are gay, lesbian, whatever, any of the things that, that they are and that makes them happy in their mm -hmm. life. That's that's wonderful, right? Yep. But that doesn't mean that everybody else in the world has to like follow with what they think. Yeah. Right? Uh, the same way that people that are ultra religious, you know, they have their, their beliefs and their convictions and that's great for them and they live their lives and they can yep. talk about it all day long. They can't force everybody else to become religious. Well, I had a okay. conversation today, Rico, with a good friend of mine, and, and we were going back and forth on some different issues. I said, Mark, zealots are dangerous on either side of the equation. Mm -hmm. they, they, don't sit, they don't listen to reason. It's like they believe they are so right that nothing else matters. And I said, I th unfortunately, I see a lot of people today that I would almost define as zealots. 
they're so far ingrained in what they're doing that you you can't reason with them. You can't show them an alternative plan. And and those are to me very dangerous people because it's they're they're so they'll do anything that they have to do because they feel their beliefs are so strong that it justifies any any acts they take. And I, I find that really dangerous today. I, you, you have to be able to have conversations. You have to be able to discuss things. You have to be able to sometimes admit like, God, I thought I had a good plan, but Rico said something that I really liked. Uh, we need to talk more about that because right. this is something I did not think about. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, uh, and as long as you're not hurting me and you're happy and I'd like to say you're being a productive part of society, I don't care what you are, who you right. are, who you want to be today. And if you're somebody else tomorrow, that's fine. Right. But just just be a good person and treat everybody nice and as you'd like to be treated and be productive. Mm-hmm. Do something with your like don't 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 waste your life. Yeah. The thing that worries me is when that ideology carries over into our government. Oh and yeah. You, have, you know, our government agencies and our current administration who feel that they are so right in what they think and, and what they want that that justifies everything that they're doing. So then you have states saying, well, you literally can't vote for this person. We're just not going to take that away as an option because we're afraid of what that person might accomplish. You know, that's absolutely ridiculous. You can't do that. Oh, 100% that, that agree. That goes completely against the foundation of this country. And it doesn't matter who the person is. Yeah. You know, it could be Republican, Independent. Leave the person out. If, if he or she can sell his case to the American right. people, then he's going to be president or he's going to be whomever, governor. Right. Uh, if you can't sell your case, if you can't sell it, then you're not going to win. But just to say, no, American people, you cannot vote for this person. Right. Well, especially when the person making the decision, it's kind of was done like in a back room sitting at their office and just signing a piece of paper. That That is just so fundamentally un-American. Right. But yeah, you talk about with the government stuff. I'm, I'm horrified every day with the FBI because some of the arrests I've seen made on political people just stun me, um, especially on the public corruption cases. If we were going to go arrest somebody that was like a, a city councilman, most of the time, it'd be, we're just going to have them surrender. When I see people being arrested with TAC teams, SWAT teams, and you're looking at this and go, who, who's approving this thing? The one that leaped out at me, because I, I couldn't believe it, um, the Miami field office arrested Roger Stone. Now, Roger Stone is an interesting individual, kind of mm-hmm. eccentric, a little weird. But five o'clock in the morning, you got guys in full SWAT gear going on his door, You've got boats behind his house, mm-hmm. so he can't go. And then, oh, by the way, somebody let CNN know, so they're videotaping the whole thing. Of course. And I'm thinking, if I was the director of the FBI with that, and I saw that on TV, I would just say, get me the SAC of Miami now uh, on the phone. He's fired. He's done. Get him out of there. And then get the next person below him. He's fired. He's gone. And let's go down about five people, and then we'll let somebody t- explain to me how this possibly happened. Because there was no need for that. Right. You and I would have gone over and said, hey, Roger, um, you've been indicted, brother. You got to go. We got to bring you down to the MMC and we get breakfast, you know, because he, he's not a threat. He's not going to hurt anybody. He's kind of a weird guy, political yeah. guy. But you see that. And then I read about that a guy, Peter Navarro, who's arrested at Reagan National Airport um, after he offered to turn himself in. It's like, why would you do that? He's the special assistant to the president of the United States. He'll surrender himself. So then you wonder, is the Bureau doing this just to embarrass people? Which Mm -hmm. first thought that comes to my mind, we would never have been allowed to do anything like that. Mm -hmm. But you just go back to a whole bunch of that crazy stuff, the Peter Strzok and his girlfriend, Lisa Page, sending text messages, now stupidity on your government BlackBerry, 
Mm -hmm. That's a fireable offense right there. That's stupid to do it. Right. But saying, we're going to stop him? Oh, my God. First time we got our Blackberries, when when they came out, I didn't want them because I knew they were going to get us in trouble because you're going to start saying things you shouldn't say. My very first message was from my buddy and was, hey, let's go get cookies at Albo Pond. They're on half price now. It's after 4 o'clock. That was my very first message. The second message I got, I'm up getting a cup of coffee at a conference. This thing goes off. I'm like, what is this guy? Hey, get that broad beside you. See if she wants drinks later. And I'm going, oh, I look at him and he goes, like, go talk to her. And I'm like, man, you, 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 you can't say things like this. He, right. And I said, these are on the FBI servers. We can't have stuff like this. He goes, you think somebody's actually looking at this? I go, yes. Good. If they gave you something, they're looking at it. And you, we can't do this. He goes, Oh, I'm going to get in big trouble with this thing. I said, yeah, we're all, you're going to get us all in trouble. So I was terrified of that. Now, of course, as you get more comfortable with it, you get a little more relaxed. But to actually say you're going to, you're basically you're going to undo an election. You're going to stop this guy from being president. I couldn't even imagine two FBI, an agent and, a, and then a, a lawyer having these conversations. I, I, yeah. that, when I saw that, I said, this can't be true. Mm-hmm. And then I talked to a buddy of mine that actually knew Peter Strzok. And he goes, oh, no, no. If you knew him, this is true. He's right. quite the zealot, as a term we just used a little while ago. So, yeah. but things like that, Rico, that, that, and I don't feel I'm that far removed. That stuff would never have happened when, when my, my peer group was in the bureau, leaving right. like the early 2000s, you know, 2010, maybe that, those things just wouldn't happen. So that's another thing that concerns me about this current administration is that they seem to be doing that on a regular basis. They're taking the FBI and the DOJ and weaponizing them against their political opponents. You know, the same things that they were accusing other people of doing prior to them being in, in power, they're doing those exact same things. Yeah, you I know? agree. And, and you know, you try to make excuses, you know, my background, I, I gotta be honest, like somebody talk when I talk about background and stuff, I, I'll kind of say, you know, I worked for the government for a while and I, I never used to do that. I used to say, well, let's just say you're a government worker. I, you know, no, I'm proud to be an FBI agent. Now, you know, people have to almost drag it out of me because you see things. It's like it's too much. And, you know, I don't know Christopher Ray real well. When he made director, um, I saw him at a conference and I knew his security detail. And I said, hey, you guys know me. I just want to talk to the new director for a minute. So I introduced myself, said, hey, I'm, I just left the Chicago Police Department. And I said, hey, director, the Bureau needs a spokesperson now. Um, you got to get out there and kind of be the cheerleader because you know, there's some stuff happened with director Comey that was not great. And the American public has challenges. And he said, well, I appreciate that, but you know, I'm not a show horse. I'm a workhorse. As soon as he said that, I'm like, Oh no. And I watch him on Congress. He didn't, he won't answer questions. You got to answer questions for the people to believe you. And you just keep Mm -hmm. taking these crazy answers. Well, I got to be really careful about this. I can't jeopardize this. It's like the guy asked you, were there any FBI resources, agents, informants in the crowd on January 6th? Mm-hmm. The answer should be no. Although I could paint out a very reasonable picture where there should be, but just say there was, you know, have honesty and then say how many we had 17. Okay. You know, and then you can maybe explain it, but to just hide this back and say, just acknowledging that they were there could, could, could hurt our national security. No, it's not, you know, in some of the big events in Chicago, the taste, which was always kind of a crazy thing. January 3rd, or July 3rd, fireworks are going off. Got a gazillion people downtown. Gangbangers are coming from the south side and the west side, causing nothing but havoc. 
we put a lot of undercover cops with a, we used a wristband to identify them, but in with the crowds, mm -hmm. just to kind of see what was going on. And of course the plan was, if there's a rabble rouser or a troublemaker, grab him and get him out of there very discreetly, just get him out. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, we had people in the crowd, of course we did. And that helped uh, keep things under control. Right. But but to to just refuse to answer questions like that, I I I think it's I think it's I think it's going to be generation for the FBI to recover its image if it ever does. Mm -hmm. You know, now you're going to have politicians coming in, some on the right are saying, "Done, break it up, blow it up." Uh, that young that young man, Vivek Ramaswamy, mm -hmm. he wants to blow up the FBI. I appreciate him because he answers questions really directly, but yes. somebody's got to coach him a little bit and say, okay, you can't blow this up completely. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of things we could do, maybe change it a little bit. But mm -hmm. that, that's one thing I like about that young man is he answers a very thoughtful question. He goes through from A to Z. Now, you may not agree with anything he says, but I appreciate the fact that at least he gives you his opinion. And right. then you can form your opinion like, that guy's pretty sharp. Or man, this guy, is he, he's a little bit out there. Right. But he's honest. He puts his beliefs forward. So it's, I have no idea how he's going to do, but I, I do appreciate the fact that at least he, he puts it out there. Mm -hmm. So that's something that always drives me nuts when uh -huh. I watch any kind of like Senate hearings or, or any of those sorts of things where you, you see somebody and they, they're asked a question and they give the most indirect answer possible. They'll just talk around in circles without ever answering the question. It's like, it isn't that hard, you know? You can say what you have to say, and and it is what it is, you know. By by you not answering the question, all that does is makes you look completely guilty. Yeah, you know, you're not willing to say, just like in that instance you brought up, you know, it was really cut and dry. There were FBI agents there. Yeah, you know, Rico, it's always the staffers. Yeah, you know, their job is to keep you out of trouble. You know, I I love my chief of staff; he's a good guy, but he'd always go through. Can be really careful with this answer. I go no. I said, I'm going to tell the truth in this. He goes, oh, I got to be really careful. Now, if I was starting to go down a path that even when I'm talking about it, I go, oh, oh I probably, he, had, he and I had a good relationship. He could almost like just like expand his eyes a little bit like me. I go, but this is a conversation for another day. So let's keep our eye on the ball and get back to what we we're talking about. Right. But um, that's one of the reasons I got good play, I think, with, with some of the different communities in Chicago was because I was very direct. I didn't answer the questions. Um, right. Hey. This sometimes I think some of these consultants, these staffers, they're so I, I think they're so hung up on my job will only remain if it, I keep my guy or my gal in his or her position. So they're going to do everything they can to keep any type of controversy away from you because that if, if that person gets removed, uh oh, then I'm out of a job too. Right. And I think sometimes this, this is just too, too um, timid on certain stuff. There was a guy, John Miller. Um, he was on 2020, he was with Los Angeles. He, he and Bill Bratton were very tight and he, because of his media experience, he was very direct and you got to tell the people the facts or at least enough of the facts for them to believe you. And a lot of people met, res resisted that approach. Mm -hmm. And my buddy and I went to one of his classes and he goes, okay, if anything really bad happens in the FBI, you two are going to come in and be the two spokesmen working with me. Cause he said, you're the only two and come across sincere, like you're being honest with the American public. And I said, John, it shouldn't be that hard, but we are so risk adverse in the FBI. We're so fearful of saying anything that could be controversial at all. But sometimes, you know, police work, you know, sometimes it's controversial. Right. You know, sometimes a bad thing happened, but that might've been the best outcome for that event. And, and that's hard to sell to people, but you just gotta be honest. 
And um, a lot of people don't like doing that because I think they're very concerned about their careers. I think they're very concerned about how will this damage them going forward. And I, I've always been, you know, hey, I may not tell you the best news, but it's going to be the it's going to be honest. And you may get pissed off at me. That's fine, but you can't say that I lied to you. And that to me is really important. I think right. all you have is your word, and if you kind of earn that up, you don't have much else to go with. Mm -hmm. So, with that in mind, can you think of a, a situation? like that where it was better just to say this was a bad situation but this is still best it could have been not off the top of my head i'm trying to think of some of the serious press conferences we did but they were they probably had some good stories the the hardest thing for me was like police shootings Mm -hmm. Um, that was really hard to explain to the family because my first thought was, what could I have done better mm -hmm. to have provided better training for that officer so that he would be alive today? Was it, was there something I could have done better? And, um, those are hard discussions to have. You look at what happened and, you know, it, it, sometimes the officers would do something and they would make mistakes. And, you know, my first thought is like, why did he make those mistakes? Did we fail in the training? Chicago Police Department training was not where it should have been. And granted, it's hard. You got 13 and a half thousand cops. It's really hard to get refresher training all the time. When I first got there, um, I asked around, like, how often do you get in-service training? And they're like, never happens. Mm -hmm. So not, those are the conversations I'd have with, with family members. And I'd, I'd say, listen, we're going to look at this and find out what happened. Um, it's not to affix any type of blame, but I don't want anybody else having to go through what you're going through. Right. It's something that I can do to make sure that those officers uh, are, have, are properly prepared to go out and do their job. And talking to the families were really, really hard, and especially talking to the kids. Um, and even talking to police officers who were really good friends with the police officer who might have been killed. I remember this young man, absolute superstar, got he got he was killed. This commander came in, he goes, hey, I just want to see if he's doing okay. And I said, no, he's, he's passed. And he just collapsed in my arms, sobbing. And I'm like, mm -hmm. he's a big guy. At first of all, he was collapsed. I bumped all him up. I said, it'll be okay. We'll get through this. We'll get through this as a family. Right. And uh, those were, those were brutal days. I, yeah. I don't know how many, well, as I get older, you don't know how many years you have left. But I, if I could have made a, a deal with God, like, hey, I'll give you five years of my life, but I don't want to see any police officer die on my watch. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm willing to make that trade off on that. Now, I don't, I, I always wonder like, what could I have done to keep that from happening? Cause those are, that's just ripped the department apart, those mm -hmm. things. And, and, you know, it, it can bring it together cause the morning and stuff, but the cost is so valuable. It's like, you just, every day you keep, I used to ask myself, what could I do better? Mm -hmm. So those are tough, but Again, you just talk. That's probably the hardest, hardest conversations I had is be able to talk to the family and look them in the eye and say, "This is what happened." Um, and especially if the if the shooter was still out there, it's mm -hmm. like I, I promise you, we will find him. I promise you that. Mm -hmm. um, tough conversations. Yeah, and that wasn't a great answer, but that's the best answer I got for you on no, that one. That makes sense, though. Um, I was just thinking that, like, and I know that police in a lot of places they have a very negative. Uh, perception from the public they they are thought of as the villains in a lot of cases right and at least some of it has to come because of police brutality and just misconduct and and these things and i can't help thinking that like because that that culture is so tight-knit and they think of each other as family 
So for them, it really is a devastating thing. It's not just that they lost a friend, you know, they, they've lost some real part of their community, right? 100%. And I, yeah. I have to wonder, like, how much of that just engenders even more of that thought process for them of it's us against them. It, you know? it, it, you, you're spot on. It, it, that was the thing I always tried to really emphasize after one of these events and say, listen, I know a lot of you are really hurt. I know there's a good percentage that are really mad. And I'm going to ask you to kind of really, you just got to be professional now. Not everybody you're going to encounter did not just kill a police officer. Mm -hmm. And I know that's going to be hard for you because I know you want to extract revenge and we got to find this guy and we're going to work around the flag to find this individual. But it was, it was hard. Sometimes it even worked with like after 9-11, you know, when I was in the FBI, there was a big push went out to make sure like civil rights and hate crime cases, because any middle Eastern person, like everybody wanted to do something to them. Right. You know, and, uh, You've got to be conscious of what those actions caused to the innocent people who just happened to look like the person that did something really bad. Mm -hmm. um, and that you, you've got to recognize that. A good friend of mine was in charge of all the hate crimes following 9-11 against the Middle Eastern community. And uh, that way he went out and met with like some major leaders and, you know, we're going to work with you. And they're kind of looking at the FBI is going to help. I said, yep, yeah, because that's what we do. We do hate crime. We do civil rights cases. Um, and we recognize there's going to be some blowback and the backlash and it, it's going to happen. I, I wish it wouldn't, but it's going to happen. Right. So how to do that. Yeah. And I know that as human beings, there is a part of us that when we're, when we feel that there has been something unjust or wrong happen, that there's a, a part of us that wants to be able to fix that, to combat that situation or to do something, to feel like we're doing, yeah. having an impact, uh, you know, to make something better. Right. And I think that in some cases, people just don't have a physical thing or an actual target. So it sort of just expands out into a lot of other things, you know, kind of like what you're saying, you know, it, when 9-11 happened, you know, the backlash against, you know, Middle Eastern people was incredible, you know, in, you know, in 60s during the civil rights, you know, there were all of these things were happening, you know. It's impossible to solve that problem if we don't think through the situations, if we don't take more time to step back and create distance and say, we need to address this, we need to fix it, but not at the expense of destroying, you know, the first thing that comes into our sights, you know? Yeah. Um, that's something that I think happens with uh, mass shootings, you know, firearms, you know, just the, the whole anti-gun agenda you know when whatever there are those events and the media goes way out of their way to you know to blow this out of proportion and not to say that these aren't horrible events right but they focus so much on the narrative that they're trying to create that they only that they're not showing anything else they're only allowing that and then you have all the people that are reactionary on this thinking we need to do something right and that something usually comes in the form of well, we're just going to make more laws they're going to yeah. increase you know all of these things to make us feel better without actually doing anything to solve the problem. Because they don't want to, they don't want to, they want to do something to feel good about the situation. We're going to put a new law. We're going to, it's got to be a, a two, a one month waiting time, or you can't buy a, an AR-15 unless you're 25 years old, or you, you can't have an AR-15. It's like, okay, well, why not? But you get so much false information that comes out. Like mm -hmm. I've listened to police chiefs say, you know, an AR-15 is the most dangerous weapon out there. You pull the trigger one time and a hundred rounds go down range. And each one of those rounds can go through cars and homes and everything else. And we go, oh my God, how can, how can you say that? And the one police chief was, a, I really like him. I called him up. I said, 
did somebody give you that information? He goes, no, they kind of hit me up on the spot to say that. He goes, was, is that accurate? I go, oh my God, no, you, you're just like so off target. Um, but yeah, everyone wants, but nobody wants to address the individual that pulled the trigger. I, I, you know, I was an EOD in the army and we'd have explosives and stuff, you know, I said, I, I could put an atomic bomb right in this table. It's totally harmless until I detonate it. And it's just like, I can lay any type of weapon, a tank, anything. It's, it's the person that's picking it up. And I argue with some of my friends in Europe, they keep going, well, nothing like this happens in Europe. I said, short memory, Nice, France. Mm -hmm. I said, basically an ice cream truck killed 84 people on one of their holidays. Narrow streets, just rode them over. No guns right. there. Right. So it, it all comes down, if the person wants to kill and do something crazy, for whatever reason, mm -hmm. which gets me back to my whole other topic about our mental health needs so much tweaking. Mm -hmm. And I think so many people are on antidepressants nowadays that, you know, it, it's, I don't even know what some of these kids are, are dealing with. I shouldn't say kids, just people in general, mm -hmm. everything, the solution, the doctor goes, I'm feeling a little down here, take this, take this. Well, what does that do to you? Mm -hmm. um, so, but everybody wants to feel they want to do something. And I understand that, but take a step back, as you mentioned before, and figure out what would really, really make a difference. And I keep going back, like, how do we keep guns out of crazy people? hands? um, People want to hurt themselves. People want to hurt somebody. Forget homicide. Talk about suicides. How do you do that? Um, you look at, well, the FBI has the national background check. Like, okay, well, that's good. That form is like decades old. And a lot of it is kind of on the honor system. You know, do you use marijuana? No. <laughs> well, it's not pinging a database. Now, would it show that I've been convicted of a drug charge? 100%. Right. But the form's talking about, am I a user? Mm -hmm. No. So there's so much on there. Uh, that is basically built, it's based upon what an agency or somebody might report in. So I always get interested on when there's new technologies out there that are trying to offer something better. Um, and when you try to come look at something that might look at that, this point in time, when I'm going to buy a firearm, what's going on in my head? Is there something on there that you, the gun dealer, might want to know about? Uh, there's a company uh, called Double Check, and I, I'm I'm really pleased to be a part on them at the ground floor as they try to develop their product. But it's basically, if you think of what clear offers for airline travel, they're trying to come up with a plan as what would be for, you know, firearm purchases. Nothing's restricts you. It's all voluntary. Um, but you as the gun dealer, me as the gun purchaser, if I go in, if I'm a member of this, I sign up, I would get a score to see if they're going to be like, you know, green, yellow, or red. And it gives you, the gun dealer, based on that one moment in time, there's no tracking, there's no monitoring. It's just that that moment in time, there'd be a check where look at social media accounts, watch list, any type of arrests, because everything on the FBI check is based on convictions. Well, if I just assaulted an officer last night and I've been arrested for it and I made bond him out, now maybe I'm going to buy a gun. Who knows? Maybe to go out and kill that officer. You as the gun dealer might want to say, hey, what, what's this deal? You got arrested last night. I'm, you're coming up as like a warning to me. But it's tricky because it's always going to be, how do you incentivize people to do this? How do you get people to sign up for clear? So mm -hmm. it's going to take like a really all out approach to go talk to the gun manufacturers who are under a lot of pressure right now and they're losing some big lawsuits. Like what will you offer people? Could you offer them a discount on any handguns that they purchase? Maybe 10% off so that the membership might be paid for, um, you know, with, with purchase of one firearm, mm -hmm. then they would know that this person has signed up. All these different data sets are being checked. It's by a private company, not by the government. 
Um, and the only, it's really between that individual who can check himself mm-hmm. and it was with the gun dealer. It's not going anywhere else. And then that dealer, when he goes to buy, uh, or sell him a firearm, he can know, Hey, this guy came up all green. Probably nothing is, you know, I never say everything's a hundred percent, but at least now you're looking at what my social media posts might be. Government can't do that. You have to almost have a search warrant now, but you can't just be out there trolling the internet to see what you're doing. And, but this is just for that moment in time. And, and the technology is there that you can take that split second in time, you know, at this time right now and boom, you're done. And this is what you came up with at that time. Nothing's being monitored. So if I go two weeks later and things come up, I might be a totally different score. But that way, the dealer knows that at this point in time, this guy had no nefarious records that would make me nervous selling him a gun. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what he did a month ago, and I don't know what's going to be in the future. So where this will go, I don't know. But I'm I'm really interested in it because you really want to keep firearms out of hands. You look at all these people that cause a lot of these things. They legally bought the guns. There wasn't any crime committed, but you know they're they're taking antidepressants. They're loners. They're they're all these things that might have you could have found out on their social media posts or looking at different things that wouldn't have prevented them from buying a purchase or buying a, purchasing a firearm, but it might've alerted the firearm dealer that maybe this isn't the person to sell the gun to. Right. So I'm seeing how that would play out. Uh, I, I love being a part of that. Um, it seems like it could go be a lot of moving pieces that we have to put together, but right. we'll see what happens. That sounds like an interesting thing. Um, I have to wonder because I distrust and dislike the ATF so much. Is that something? Do you think that they could ever interfere with that or use that to their advantage? Excellent question. I don't. I'd like to say no because there's no storage. Mm-hmm. It's basically you know, it's almost like you do a like a. You know, I know you say, well, there's a record of your history searches, but it's just for that moment in time. Mm-hmm. So you couldn't go back in and say like, well, what was this? Uh, what was this showing? Because nothing's being stored. Right. It's all just like pull it up at that moment, takes a few seconds and it has all this data pull out there and it puts in Jody Weiss and it goes out and comes back up and it's like flashing green, like, hey, he's good to go or red, red, red. Now, the reds are going to come up, probably is going to be caught in the NICS data checks. But the ones we were concerned with are, like I mentioned, I was just arrested for a severe crime. I made bond, I'm out. Now I want to buy a gun. That will never come up in NICS, right. not an arrest. It just won't pop up. Mm-hmm. But wouldn't it be nice to know if I just... Have, got arrested for a crime of violence like right. last week, and now I'm going to buy a gun, that gun dealer might think, hmm, no, I'm not going to sell you this. I'm right. really not going to sell you this gun because of what happened two weeks ago. Well, you have to sell me. No, no, no. I don't have to sell you anything. I'm a right. business owner. I can tell you to get out of my store. If you want to go buy one, go to somebody else. But uh, uh, you're a member of this. I got this. Um I'm not going to sell you a gun today. Right. And then you, but the, the, the challenge to me is what's going to incentivize people to do this. So there's got to be, you know, money always helps. Mm-hmm. So if I can get decent discounts, maybe I get free range time because there's never any background checks at ranges. Right. You know, I look back at Chris Kyle, he got killed by you know a guy in the range. He's trying to help with PTSD. And, you know, you go to a range, you sign up, you know, they're not doing any background checks there. You walk in all of a sudden you pull out a pistol and start shooting people on, on the range. So I think any, I think there's buy-in. It's just like, how is this going to happen? It's going to take the firearms industry to make some concessions and offer some stuff. It's going to take like USCCA. Maybe they give a discount on insurance. If you sign up, there's got to be some incentives to make um, 
to make people want to sign up for this. Mm -hmm. So we'll see what happens. Like I said, this is this is just on the ground floor, like a startups, which I love right. because yeah. then everybody's kind of got their creative juices flowing and they try to do something exciting. Right. And sometimes they die, they don't go anywhere. Sometimes they take off and they turn out well. So I'm just kind of excited to be a part of this. So we'll see how it goes. Right on. That actually does sound like a, a good idea. Like like I said, I'm always just concerned with Oh, so it's 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 a delicate balancing act because right. um, Second Amendment people are going to say no way, but the Second Amendment people, the hardcore ones, and I would say nobody's more Second Amendment than me. But some of the guys that are really hardcore mm -hmm. used to say, "Hey, there should be no restrictions whatsoever. You have a right to defend yourself. That's given by God, mm -hmm. and you have that right." Even a lot of those guys now are saying, "You know what? If you've gotten all these mental health issues, maybe you shouldn't have a handgun." So. People are starting to come in. I think you have to. I mean, these school shootings are horrible. And you keep mm -hmm. saying, well, what could have prevented that? And it always seems after the fact, oh, yeah, that kid never should have had a gun. He was a nut. Or, yeah, he all these crazy social media. Posts. Well, how did he buy one? Yeah. You hate to say it because it's almost like, well, the government doesn't check on those type of things. Uh, right. It's not being recorded. It's not being caught. Mm -hmm. So that's when I when I first heard about this company and they were catching. Again, it's, it's volunteer, which is probably the way it only could happen right now. But if you can give me enough incentives to say, okay, I'll put my name in this thing. Uh, I can still get 15% off in any gun. Oh, and ammo's 20% off. Oh, and free range time. Okay, yeah, I'm in. Yeah. Um, at least it'll, it, maybe it keeps honest people honest, you know, yeah. which is kind of like you do sometimes on your security systems. But right. we got to do something, I think, to just keep, keep your head in the sand, keep denying it, saying, no, we're not going to change anything. We're not going to make any concessions. I think the firearm industry is is living in the past. You got to look at this because the no one can justify these school shootings. There's right. and the, there's no justification for that. It's horrible things. They should never have happened. Um, but then how do you prevent them? And that's the part that people are trying to wrestle without because making new laws aren't going to do anything. Right. They're going to do absolutely nothing. But um, you know, you could say, you know, we'll dissolve the Department of Education, put three U.S. Marshals in every school. Right. That that probably has that that would be much better than trying to limit um, the fact that my AR can only carry 10 rounds. Or that know. the barrel has to be 16 inches. Oh, my God. It, else. These, you, you see the stuff that comes down, especially if you have some any type of affiliation with firearms and understand that. You just look at these people, and here's, here's one of my favorite ones. I, I think it's New Jersey. In New Jersey, you are not allowed to put hollow points in your handgun. Okay. You'll be arrested. So you're thinking about this like, okay, so I keep my handgun for self-protection, self-defense. Yet you're making me loaded with ball ammo, which will go right through a human being, probably right through a second human being, and maybe go through the cinder block wall um, behind them. Rather than putting hollow points in there or defense ammunition, which all the energy would stay in the individual who's trying to kill you. But some politician says, oh, no, hollow points, bad. Let's just use ball ammo. And it gets passed. So you're a law-abiding citizen. You, you got your Leosa carry. You're walking around. Uh, New Jersey, and all of a sudden, for some reason, you get stopped, and you say, "Hey, I'm like, my Losa thing. Can we see your handgun, sir?" Oh yeah, here he goes. Oh my God, you're gonna get arrested. You got hollow points in here. I said, "What should I be carrying? Ball ammo?" No, you. That's insane. State law. Come right. on, you're going to jail now. And you look at this. He's like, "This can't be happening. No one could be that stupid." But because people want to do something, they make these crazy laws, and they're hard to undo. Right. Uh, so then you got some ridiculous law. I, I when I read about that, I could not believe that. Mm -hmm that you would have a law mandating, you know, ball ammo in a firearm that's using for self-defense. And this is all coming from the same kind of politicians that don't know anything about firearms to begin with. Yeah. You know, that believe that, you know, there's hundred round, you know, pulling the trigger once fires a hundred rounds or 
whatever it is. You know, Joe Biden says some of the, the craziest things. Yeah, what do you about, say? Take a double barrel shotgun and shoot through the door or something? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. We had it's a last uh, quick story. I went out one day and I saw like a police car had been shot at and like the guy had an AK-47. So I asked, we, we've got to up the roll. So we, there was that program, forget what it was. You could get surplus U.S. Um, weapons. So we were able to get um, AR, we basically M16s. We converted them to ARs, so they semi-automatic for like 39 bucks. Mm -hmm. And we got hundreds of them. And we made, we got the guys went through a 40 hour course. They were trained up. So some of the community was very upset about that. How can you do that? Putting weapons of war in the street. I said, okay, come here. So I get a reporter who was very friendly to the police. And I said, come down to the range. We're going to do some tests. So I said, okay, I'm going to demo this one. So I take out my 45. I did cheat. I had ball ammo in it. Mm -hmm. I said, there's two blocks of ballistic gelatin. There's a cement block. There's drywall. Let's see what happens when I shoot with this little firearm that I have in my, on my hip. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I shoot ball ammo, goes through both blocks of ballistic gelatin, breaks the cinder block, goes through the drywall and goes in the backstop. I said, now let's take this dangerous looking weapon and see what happens. So the SWAT guy fires it in there. J hook in the first block of ballistic bulletin does it like 10 times. I said, now let's show our viewers all that stayed in one person. Mm -hmm. So all that energy from that mean, horrible looking, dangerous weapon, Stayed in that one person. That ballistic belt represents a guy who was trying to kill someone. And look what happened there. That second block of ballistic gelatin, that was an innocent bystander. And then the brick wall that went through, and then who knows what it hit behind him. So you, you can see that point. So she goes, yeah, that's really good. She's videotaping this. I said, now let's talk about accuracy. This report is extremely attractive. So of course, the firearm instructors were all over to help her. Of course. So they give her like a Glock. Um, they put like 10 balloons up. She hits it like two times. Then they give her an AR. Of course, it has the red dot scope on it. They now try this one. She shoots all of them. She goes, wow. I said, now let's think about this. If you have to use deadly force, you probably want to be accurate and you want to make sure that there's no overpenetration. All the energy is absorbed into the bad guy or gal that was trying to hurt you. So look what we just proved today. So she goes, this is brilliant. These, these weapons are actually safer than the guns you put, the guys have on their hips. I said, please don't put that out. <laughs> uh, leave that part out. And so she's like, yeah, okay, I got that. Because then they, then they'd want us to walk around like with batons, like you know the birth right. police have. But just putting that story out just quelled all the issues. And then I got that videotape somewhere I had, and I was just pushing that out all the time. So it's like, hey, look at this. This is not overpenetrated. It's really good. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, it gets back to the whole messaging thing. Mm -hmm. And if you just put something out without the right messaging, even the even the the best laid plans will fail. Right. Um, so there's, I hope we can do something in the firearms world that, that can actually make a difference. And that's where I met you. And I know we're both committed to responsible gun ownership. We want to make sure people certainly have their second amendment, right. But it's got, that comes with so much responsibility. And I'm, I'm always very fearful when people say, I'm going to carry a gun. It's like, you've got to get training. You should have insurance. Mm -hmm. We, we started teaching, um, concealed carry in Illinois. One of my kind of little jobs I was doing, put together a team. Probably a third of the people after we gave the class to said, thank you. Um, um, I will never carry a weapon concealed because we went through all the different laws and stuff and they're going, mm -hmm. oh my God, you know, I could, I, this is going to get me into trouble. And you know, at first I felt bad. It's like, well, we'll give you your check back. They go, no, 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 no. They go, 
that was the best, I think it was 250 bucks we ever paid in our life. And I said, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you start realizing it, you know, it's good that they recognize, they recognize the responsibility, they recognize all the bad things that could happen. Um, and they chose, they made a decision. What if they would have gone out and just bought the firearm and started carrying it concealed? And of course, with no training, could they even use it? But then if something had happened where they had to use it, mm-hmm. they, how liable could they have been? So it's so important, I think, to get the training. I think insurance is really important. And to just understand the laws that you're facing. And I, I thought like the class that Josh teaches with Guardian, phenomenal going yes. through that thing. It's He really goes through and explains this stuff to even as people that are pretty familiar with it. You know, these are the things that can happen to you. And yeah, especially the former law enforcement, you want to tell the cops exactly what happened. Under this criteria, I mean, even when I was in the FBI and when I was running the Philadelphia field office, the Department of Justice had a policy. If you were an FBI agent or a task force officer, if you were involved in a shooting, there would be a civil rights case opened on you immediately. Wow. And I used to tell the agents, I said, listen, do what you want to do, but understand there is a criminal case open on you right now. And what's going to happen is we're going to gather the facts, hopefully from somebody other than you. I will personally call the Department of Justice. I will relay the facts to them, and then they're going to decline it. But right now, there's a case open on you. So understand that. But I want to talk. I said, understand this. And I said, I can't stop you. And some guy goes, well, could you order me to talk? I said, not right now. I can't. Um, All I can get is kind of that public safety brief. Mm -hmm. Um, But the the Department of Justice wasn't out to get anybody. But they just did that. And actually, we go, I kind of like that. Because then you knew, you know, right. and you knew like, hey, say what you want, but there is a criminal case open on you right now. And I said, will I be fired if I don't talk to you? Nope. Um, but I just want to let you, this was what happened. And after a while, I go, I like it. I just know I know what the ground rules are. Right. You know, I'm willing to adapt and be flexible, but I got to know what the rules are. So mm-hmm. anyways, um, I, I think there's just a lot of work that needs to be done in the whole firearms field. I, I think we're, we're a country that that right allows us to be a free country. Mm-hmm. Um, it allows us our first amendment rights, at least usually, right. but, um, but it's something that could easily go away. And I yeah. think there's, sadly, I think there's a lot of people in this country would love to just line through that whole second amendment part of oh, our yeah. constitution. If they, if they could, they would. Sure. Yeah. One of the politicians, I'm not going to name his name, but I saw where he started reading it at an, at a national, uh, NRA conference. He said, let's talk about some constitution. So he's quoting this constitution. It sounded pretty good. And he goes, okay, sounds good. But you know what? That's the constitution of Iran. And there's no second amendment on there. So all the things that talk about it grant you, there's no way to enforce it. Then he starts quoting the one from China. Mm -hmm. Sounds pretty good. Until he goes, again, this is China. There's no second amendment in there. So everything they've said, it cannot be enforced. I was impressed that he's quoting these things uh, off the top of his head. So you can probably guess who it might be. but it's an amazing way to show how valuable that Second Amendment is. And that's, I think, why it's probably number two. I think our most valuable right is number one, freedom right. speech. And then, but how do you enforce that? Or how do you make sure you have it? Right. So it works. There was a comedian that talked about that. He said uh, how how important it was. It was the second thing they wrote. He goes, the first one, you know, freedom of speech. Great. But if you want to keep that, you better get a gun. Yeah. <laughs> Look what happened oh. in Australia. They took all their guns, and it, I thought, I thought Australia was out of control after COVID. Mm-hmm. People were like sheep, right? I mean, we don't yeah. have any guns. Yeah, uh-huh. and you know, and even from a, the way the world is kind of exploding right now, I mean, 
I've I've read a lot of studies where one of the reasons we've never really been invaded is because I think it said in Japan during World War II, there's a rifle behind every blade of grass in America, and exactly. uh, it's something to be thought about. You're an invading form. It's like, well, okay, we can deal with the army, but there's a lot of crazies out there that have those rifles, and they're they're, they're going to be hard to find. The whole country is armed. And you look at it, it's like there's more firearms than people. Right. So there, when you say like every blade of grass has a right, I think that that's not a, a crazy statement. Right. And maybe that keeps our enemies at bay, hopefully. Mm-hmm. So. And hopefully it keeps uh, a totalitarian government in its place yes. also. Hopefully it does. So, <laughs> But on that note, I want to be respectful of your time. I know that you got other things to do. I greatly appreciate you being here, though. Um, it's been a pleasure, like, not just speaking with you here, but, like, getting to know you when we did go through the course with Josh. Um, and you're absolutely right. Josh is an amazing instructor. He's a good friend of mine. I've loved every class that I've ever gone through with him. Yeah. Um, I told him and his wife, this is the best course I've ever had. Yeah. I've had the opportunity to go through several fireman instructor courses. I said, you guys are phenomenal. I said, it was, it was fun. I said, and you did the important part. There's a lot of great shooters out there. There's not a lot of great instructors. So you can have people that can shoot lights out, but they don't know how to talk to people. Right. You put everybody on the spot. You did it in a fun way, but there's still a little pressure. Mm-hmm. And uh, it really gives people confidence. Like, hey, I can talk to a group of people I've never met before. And I said, I, I just thought you did a phenomenal job on that. So mm-hmm. I'm going to try and work with him a little bit more over this year and, and do some stuff with him. I hope to connect with him in the shop, but he and Karen are just good folks. And oh, yeah. I think they're really, really good people. So yeah. I'm, I'm, I really appreciate the cast, not only getting certified as USCCA instructor, but also meeting people like you and Josh and Karen and the other folks in that class. It was, a, it was a good group of people and yeah. it's people that care about our countries, which is always nice. That is a huge thing. So again, thank you for being here. Yes, sir. My and, pleasure. Uh, all right, then. Bye everybody. Thank you for listening, and if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Also, you can now support the non-victim nation by donating via listener support directly on Spotify. Remember, the story of your life is being written right now, and you are the hero.